ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. At Principal Asset Management, taking an active approach to investing means looking at asset management through a different lens one with a clear focus on our clients. Consider principal ETFs, actively managed ETF strategies built with portfolio construction in mind. For more information and to explore the full range of principal ETF options, visit principalam.com forward slash ETF. Copyright 2023 Principal Global Investors. Alps Distributors Inc. is a distributor of the principal ETFs. Alps Distributors Inc. and the principal funds are not affiliated. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify, who just yesterday, Tom and Vetify hosted a fixed income symposium. And I'll tell you, the speakers they had at this thing was uh, impressive. Truly a who's who from the fixed income and fixed income ETF space. And so I thought it'd be interesting to hear from Tom on some of his key takeaways from this event, because I just feel like Fixed income is a topic where, while it's usually pretty boring, there now seems to be a lot more <laughs> interest and excitement around this. Now, I do think a big part of that is obviously due to the fact that there's now uh, income in fixed income. But I would also say uh, there's some real uncertainty moving forward in terms of what the Fed does. Are we able to avoid a recession? So should you take on duration risk? not take on duration risk? Uh, should you take on credit risk? I, I just feel like fixed income has become a much more interesting topic over the past year or two. Plus, there's been a lot of innovation on the ETF side of the equation as well. And so we will hear from Tom on all of that. And I also have some uh, advisor polling data from Tom that I want to work in. So it should be a great conversation. Also joining me this week will be Paul Kim, CEO and co-founder of Simplify ETFs, who recently crossed over $2 billion in uh, ETF assets. They've taken in nearly $700 million just this year. And I think Simplify has one of the most unique ETF lineups out there. They're uh, not bringing cookie-cutter products to market. I actually went to their website this morning. I want to read you how they describe themselves. They say, quote, our ETF lineup helps asset allocators reimagine their core equity holdings with convexity, directly and efficiently hedge portfolios against rising interest rates, generate risk-managed income, gain exposure to alternatives, and much, much more. 
That, to me, is Simplify in a nutshell. And so we'll get into that ETF lineup, uh, including several ETFs they've launched over the past few months. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Julie Kane, CEO and co-founder of Democracy Investments. She's going to spotlight the Democracy International Fund ETF, ticker DMCY, which uh, seeks to overweight countries that embrace democracy and underweight more authoritarian uh, countries. So I'll have Julie explain how they're doing that. And I have to mention, Julie flew helicopters for the U.S. Navy. So you better believe I'm asking her about that. As always, uh, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, 600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, great having you back on the podcast. Hey, Nate, great to be back. Hope you're having a good summer. I am so far. It's really hot here, though, now. I think we're, uh, we're going to be pushing 100 degrees. So uh, we're in the dog days of summer, as they, uh, as they call them. Well, I hope you're putting that grill to work. Always. <laughs> so look, uh, Vetify held this fixed income symposium yesterday. I, I guess first, how did that go? Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it. I ended up getting uh, tied up. But it looks like you had a fantastic turnout. We had a great turnout and kind of, as you were saying on your early session, it's important to identify that fixed income is really important right now for financial advisors and investors. You know, we've got a big Fed meeting this week. Many people are feeling like this might be it for Fed uh, rate hikes, and that's something to consider too. Um, But the key is a lot of people have lost money in fixed income last year while they were also losing money on the equity side. And now here we are in 2023 where equity markets have rebounded and there's better clarity about where rates might be in the coming year. And we're learning a lot from advisors as far as the strategies that they're implementing for their clients. Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, just given that last year was a historically bad year for bonds, you would think maybe interest in the category would wane. But um, because of that year, that's why we're in the spot we're in now, right? Because there is actually income and fixed income. And we're clearly seeing the interest here. I mean, if you look at ETF flows, if we want to use that as a gauge of uh, just general interest, Bond ETFs have taken in something like 45% of the inflows this year, even though they only represent uh, less than 20% of total ETF assets. So I think that's a good data point. The other factor, I think, is what I was mentioning at uh, at the top in terms of ETF innovation, where we have seen a lot of uh, interesting new products come to market. Like I think of firms like FM Investments and Bond Block. So I know you had... uh, both Alex uh, Morris and uh, Joanna Gallagos uh, speak yesterday at your symposium uh, on that. But those are firms that I would say are exhibit A in terms of the bond uh, ETF innovation. And I think we're going to continue to see that. As a matter of fact, I was going to ask you, did you see that new uh, Cerulli Associates report from last week that was on this topic? I did. And so all institutions and ETF issuers are teed up for more accumulation in the ETF fixed income space. 
And, you know, we were seeing more of that yesterday. I mean, to, to your point, we've moved past the Barclays ag. I think everybody is deconstructing the ag where they're fine tuning their allocations on the government side. Uh, money market funds, as you say before, are, are starting to pay real income. And then on the corporates and high yields, we've seen advisors go a little bit longer duration and taking on a little bit more risk. And then when you talk about the alternative side, I know you're going to hear from Paul Kim coming up. He was one of our speakers yesterday. The alternative income area of the market is becoming its own asset class, and advisors are making uh, a portion of the pie important for the advisors in this area where it's reducing risk, but also maintaining a pretty high uh, income stream as well. Yeah, I just brought up that Cerulli Associates uh, survey because when you, you know, again, I mentioned at the top that bonds are typically a pretty boring topic, at least in my opinion. But with the innovation we're seeing in the ETF space, and of course, again, there being income now, there's just so much more interest here. And they said uh, bond ETFs are continuing to gain interest due to those higher yields. And then they said greater comfortability with using ETFs. They also said that active fixed income is the, uh, quote, next frontier for ETF issuers. They said there's still a lot of uh, white space for attractively priced active ETFs, and we can talk more about that. But one of the things I, I wanted to work in here, Tom, I mentioned that you had sent over some advisor polling questions. So I have some uh, from the actual symposium yesterday, and then you sent them uh, over some other ones as well. And I, I pulled out a couple that I thought were relevant to our discussion today, and I'll, I'll try to work those in. But I want to tee up this one for you because I, I think this is perfect to what we're talking about. So the question was, what percentage of the fixed income allocation in your client's portfolios are invested in uh, bond ETFs. And th this surprised me. So 52% said only zero to 10%. And then 40% said 10 to 50%. And then the other 8% uh, was 50% and greater. Again, that that's pretty surprising to me, but I actually invert that. And that, to, that speaks to the enormous opportunity for ETF issuers. Again, going back to the Cerulli report, and, and we now have income, I think things are just getting started in the bond ETF category. Yeah, you're right. And I think part of the answer here, Nate, is a lot of advisors who've been doing this for a while came from allocation to mutual funds. And there have been great fund managers over time that have done a really good job, and most of them are active. Early on, most of the money that was in the fixed income side of the, of the balance sheet was index-based. And that's worked really well coming out of the financial crisis while we were having a whole 30 years of declining interest rates. But once things got dicey in the last couple of years, your point about active is spot on. More people are moving to active strategies and more issuers are allocating or, or teeing up active strategies for advisors. So that area is going to continue to grow, and especially with all the nuances in the marketplace today, trying to judge inflation, the Fed, are we going to be uh, in, a, in a recession for an extended period of time? How deep might it be? And then if we do get in a period where the Fed starts to cut rates again, I mean, you're a student of the market. They're not always orderly that, like they are uh, on the hiking side where it's 25 bips every couple of months. They come in with a tomahawk and start slashing really quickly. So if you're not allocated on longer duration and you're sitting there in money market funds, you're not able to pick up on that appreciation. You're just getting your rates cut dramatically and then missing out on that appreciation 
that you should be gaining on that you gave back last year when when uh, bonds were declining. Okay, let, let's actually talk more about that because I'm really curious to hear what the sentiment was at the symposium uh, yesterday on this topic. Because from my perspective, I think the biggest question on the minds of most advisors and investors right now is what will happen with interest rates. And if you look, expectations right now are for the Fed to hike uh, another time or two this year, right? Hike tomorrow, potentially another time uh, this year. But if you look at the yield curve, as I know you're well aware, it's still uh, heavily inverted. And so it's tough because do you take those higher front end rates now, knowing that there's the risk that they come back in and you have uh, reinvestment risk? Or do you try to lock in longer term rates where you might get some capital appreciation, to your point, if, if rates fall, but where you do have that risk that rates could still move higher? That is a possibility. And then you get hammered on that uh, duration play. And I'll, I'll just give you an example here, uh, Tom. If you look at uh, the iShares 20 plus year Treasury bond ETF, so uh, ticker TLT, that has a duration of over 17 and a 30-day SEC yield of, it's like 3.85%. On the other hand, if you look at the iShares 0 to 3-month Treasury bond ETF, SGOV, yield is 5.21% and basically no duration risk. And so I'm just curious what you felt like the sentiment was yesterday among the uh, the speakers you had in, in kind of figuring out that risk-return equation. Sure. Well, I, I think to frame this the right way, Nate, when you look at uh, most advisors' allocation today, 62% had some type of timing or trend-following strategy that they've utilized for their clients. So in the last year or two, they've taken money off, off the table, both on the equity side and the fixed income side. They've got a lot of dry powder. And they're, as you point out, are getting paid for keeping that in money market funds. And their clients are happy about that. However, they're also looking to where the puck is going and knowing that down the road, if we do get a uh, cuts, they don't want to have all that money on the sidelines. They need to start deploying it. Now, they're not going out 17 years. They might be going out six or six or eight years, which is longer than where they are now, where they were playing in money market fund land or uh, short duration active space and getting paid handsomely for it. But they know that those rates probably won't be available a year from now, so they have to plan on locking in longer, longer and higher rates. Um, we may be in a situation where we're in a higher rate environment, and that's okay too, because eventually if we do get in a deeper recession, we know that the Fed will come in and have the backstop and start cutting, and there's that appreciation kicker. They're not looking for the appreciation kicker, but what they want to make sure is these rates that are today being paid in money market funds, that they transition those to maybe high quality corporates, and we're going to have more stable rates for an extended period of time. Yeah, I, I mean, that all makes sense to me and definitely not investment advice from my perspective. It's just hard for me to get my head around the risk return of taking on a ton of duration risk right now for the yields that are out there. And again, I, I get what could happen with short-term yields. But to, to that point, uh, you had another poll question. So let me read this because uh, this is perfect for, for what we're talking about. The question was, is your portfolio position for interest rates being higher for longer? And 47% said, yes, I am short duration versus the benchmark. 36% said, I'm neutral versus the benchmark. 
And then only 17% said, no, I'm longer duration versus the benchmark. So definitely weighted towards uh, shorter duration overall, which makes sense to me right now. But you you mentioned um, looking maybe at investment grade, moving into the corporate space. I'm curious, what was the sentiment about taking on credit risk? And I've talked about this before. If we do get into a recession, um, taking on credit risk is probably not where you want to be, right? But if the Fed pulls off a soft landing, which is looking like a more reasonable option right now, look, the, 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 there's extra yield to scoop up here. So so what did you feel like the sentiment was uh, from the uh, symposium speakers on that? Yeah, so specifically, uh, 57% said they were going to take on more duration and less credit risk. Um, the 20% said more duration and more credit risk. The bottom line is, hands down, there's more duration appetite out there in the marketplace among advisors. I think the big question is, how deep is that recession going to be? And as you point out, if it's a soft landing, that may work right into the the hands of most advisors out there with their clients. I mean, we want to get back to where things are more stable in the fixed income marketplace. This has been the biggest challenge for advisors as far as fixed income allocation in, in 30 years. Most have never been through it. At the same time, there are some great opportunities that may not be there a year from now. So it's it's difficult. And that's part of the reason why we had the symposium. You know, in the heat of the summer, Nate, you know, able to get all these great speakers and great advisors out there because we're all dealing with it. I mean, uh, market volatility and uh, stress in, the, in, in allocation isn't always seasonal, right? Well, to me, the, uh, the, the credit risk conundrum is that's more difficult than the, the uh, duration risk. Again, I already mentioned where I'm at on the duration side. But on the credit side, look, you can scoop up a little bit of a, a higher yield if you're willing to take on that risk. And one of the questions you did ask um, symposium attendees yesterday was, uh, was which fixed income investment style do you see making the largest contribution to, uh, to in the next 12 months? And 15% said money market funds, 25% said U.S. treasuries. But but listen to this, 44% said investment grade corporate bonds and 16% said high yield corporate bonds. So here you have 60% saying that that is the investment sell, taking on that, that corporate credit risk that they're going to make the largest contribution to in the next 12 months. You know, that doesn't scream risk off. And uh, maybe there is that growing sentiment that, uh, advisors think that the Fed will pull this off. I didn't know if that stood out to you at all. Yeah, it was important. However, the way the question is is poised, where do you think the best opportunities are? It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to put more of their money in there. They, they're, the good thing is that they're confident that uh, now is an opportunity to take on a little bit more risk while they have a, a lot of money in short duration and a lot of money in money market funds. So good. That's that, that's good both for the fixed income investors and we're seeing positive trends on the equity side as well. I think the biggest fear is if the Fed uh, continues to have to hike rates just because it can't finally get inflation under control, uh, what happens there? What, what happens to the markets at that point? But right now, more uh, advisors are positive than they are negative. But we're starting to see that we may not get rate cuts until later 24 at this point, which 
isn't necessarily a bad thing because if you go longer duration, you're kind of locking in those higher gains and people are feeling uh, more comfortable about switching the allocation from money market funds or short duration to longer duration. Tom, just a few minutes left here. I noted some of the speakers you had yesterday. So firms like FM Investments, who, of course, they offer the single treasury bond ETFs, uh, bond blocks, who uh, they're slicing and dicing the uh, the bond market, especially in the high yield space. You mentioned Simplifies. Paul Kim was a speaker on alternative income strategies. Of course, he'll be joining me here in just a moment. I saw, uh, who else are looking at the list? David uh, Braun, Managing Director at PIMCO. You had Steve Lapley, Managing Director at BlackRock. I'm just curious, you know, you think about the ETF space, which we were talking about earlier, there are now so many more tools in the toolbox for advisors. Did anything stand out to you as it pertains to specific uh, specific products or specific ETFs? Well, we we had a lot of great speakers, Nate. And and, um, as you point out, there were some of the the big ones right there as well. I would say, you know, companies um, like Panagram, which is a new entry in the space that specializes in CLOs, they've been dealing with institutions for an extended period of time where mostly CLO allocation was from. Now they're bringing it to the advisor community and to self-directed investors. Fran Rodoloso from Van Eck was on that one as well. That's a kind of a cool opportunity where you're getting a high yield and you don't have to go longer duration. Obviously, uh, alternative income, as you point out with Paul and uh, the folks over at JP Morgan did a great job. Uh, The folks at NEOS who are experts in the space, they've been around this in a long time, but NEOS is a new player where they have covered call strategies too. And then uh, Paul was on with Graham Day with Innovator, which is just really strong with new and creative strategies. So I think the big thing is we walked away with a lot of choice and there was a lot of good education about strategy and portfolio construction going into 24. Uh, We had a lot of good feedback. I mean, look, this is something that we may do not just once a year, but maybe even on a quarterly basis, because there's so much move and so uh, there's so many moving pieces that are going on right now. And advisors love getting together, sharing ideas, uh, sharing questions, the polling questions, as you know, we share right away. And it's good to get some type of consensus as an advisor, because there's a lot of pressure on us these days, right? Well, I'll make a suggestion for the topic of your next symposium. How about uh, Bitcoin ETFs? <laughs> well, it, it's funny, Nate, we're thinking about it because we are seeing more interest lately. And, and you know, it, it's not wrong. I mean, things interest is coming back. The other thing is AI. Um, so many players in the AI space, um, it, and the list is almost 20 ETF issuers touch on AI-related ETFs. So these are th- some things we're thinking about. Keep throwing uh, ideas our way. I will. Well, congratulations on that successful uh, symposium, and I will be looking for uh, for future ones out there. I'll, I'll be sure to make them. But thank you for joining me this week, Tom. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF prime. 
That's FoolETFs.com slash ETF Prime. My next guest is Paul Kim, CEO and co-founder of Simplify ETFs, who currently offers 26 ETFs, nearly $2.2 billion in assets. That includes five new ETFs launched this year. Simplify just continues uh, to innovate and roll out new products. And I should note that Paul is no spring chicken in the ETF space. Uh, Prior to Simplify, he launched and built Principles multi-billion dollar ETF business. He was also a senior vice president and ETF product manager at PIMCO, where he helped launch their uh, 20-plus billion dollar ETF platform. So he certainly knows the ETF business inside and out. And he's now on the line with me from Los Angeles. Paul, welcome back to the uh, podcast. It's been a while. It's been a while, way too long, me. But uh, thank you again for the opportunity to talk and catch up. Well, so look, at the uh, top of the podcast, I was mentioning how I do think you have one of the most unique ETF lineups out there. And we'll, of course, get into some of your specific ETFs. But if I look down the list here, you have a volatility premium ETF, an interest rate hedge ETF, a uh, U.S. equity plus downside convexity ETF. There's a managed futures ETF. I'd love to have you start by uh, describing how you're positioning simplifying the ETF market. Because, again, your lineup does not look like a lot of the other <laughs> issuers' lineups out there. Thanks, Nate. Uh, and totally agree with that. I think um, the overarching theme of our ETF platform is that we're trying to create an alternative uh, sort of provider for the ETF vehicle. So alternatives being any asset class outside of your traditional bonds and equities. Uh, it may include things like commodities in different forms, as well as sort of hedge fund type strategies that make use of, you know, liquid uh, sort of investment to do interesting things that help the portfolio primarily for diversification or less correlated or uncorrelated returns versus those other two uh, main asset classes. Why do you think your approach is resonating right now? Because again, I mentioned at the top, you recently crossed over $2 billion in ETF assets. I'm showing you have nearly $700 million uh, in inflows just this year. And the majority of your 26 ETFs do have positive uh, inflows this year as well. Why do you think your lineup is resonating right now? Um, it's, it's offering, again, something new, right? Relatively um, inaccessible before in an ETF wrapper. Um, the ETF vehicle itself is obviously growing massively every year, it's, it feels like, since uh, we've been in the business. But most importantly, it's offering a differentiated um, set of ETFs that are useful and, perf- and have uh, performed well and so are very attractive from a portfolio perspective as investors. Again, look around uh, with with the reminder of what happened in 2022 with both bonds and equities selling off, the need and the desire to add something to help portfolio diversification or generate attractive income, but all the things that alts have been supposed to provide for decades, I think 2022 was the perfect sort of a anecdote of why you need something other than bond diversification. So I think that's all of the above ETF trends, as well as the, very recent reminder in 2022. And then, of course, just the 
the new introduction of supply of ETFs that provide all. Yeah, and for listeners, I, I should have mentioned that Simplify has only been around for less than three years. Right, right, Paul? You didn't launch your first ETF until, what, September of 2020. So, again, very impressive. What One thing I'm curious about, because, and again, we'll get into some of the ETFs here in a moment, but given um, the differentiated nature of your products, and I do think that you are trafficking in some more complex strategies. Can you talk a little bit about the education component and, you know, how you are attempting to educate the marketplace, both advisors and end investors on these strategies? Because I, I would think that's a little bit of a heavier lift. Yep, it's definitely a heavier lift than, uh, again, those traditional classes or or sector ETFs, for example, or thematic ETFs that tend to uh, be similar in construction. Um, I think first, some of our strategies follow a decade-long um, strategies like managed futures or equity long short, right? Things that have been around in, in a typically a hedge fund or CTA type wrapper. It, it, so it's not reinventing the wheel, a, a, a complete sort of a ground up, you know, reinvention. Mm-hmm. It's really been providing access, which is the classic mission for ETFs, right? It's sort of like how do I access physical gold? How do I access EM equities or bonds? And, and the ETF vehicle has been a very great way to access these type of markets. So that's number one. But on more innovative and sort of a truly simplified first mover ETF, I think the primary uh, education serves as showing how these strategies can work inside of a portfolio. So we've had to hire very, very technical and smart people who can help that process. Uh, We've also had to build a lot of infrastructure and systems, uh, including portfolio analytics and uh, sort of portfolio construction tools to help people, our investors, visualize performer portfolios with alternatives and our strategies built inside of them. So I think all of the above, uh, but we, we're leaning heavily on the fact that people are looking for alternatives. And, and when there's a need and a demand for it, um, it becomes easier to sell rather than sort of, uh, you know, there's a pull as, as aspect of, uh, as much as there is a push. All right. So let's go through uh, several of your ETFs just to give listeners a flavor here. So currently your most popular ETF is the Simplify Short-Term Treasury Future Strategy ETF, ticker symbol TUA, TUA, uh, which this seems pretty straightforward. This targets the duration of a seven to 10 year U.S. Treasury index. Uh, you're, you're investing in a combination of treasuries themselves and treasury futures. I, I, I guess what's the differentiator here? The differentiator is that it, it's uh, basically providing access to the two year treasury futures contract, but in a way that's efficient, i.e., uh, not a 100% notional exposure, but uh, kind of a 5x type of exposure, because if you lever up the two-year about five times, you get the duration of you know roughly the 10-year. Um, why is it interesting? It, it's interesting because it's, it's taking, uh, it allows investors to take a very specific view on the curve, the treasury curve. The treasury curve behaves very differently, whether you're looking at the front end of the curve, the belly, or, or the long end. And historically, people have accessed treasuries through uh, mostly treasury bonds, right? So buying cash bonds, which 
is great. It, it provides an access point, but it's very inefficient in that if you have a view that uh, the two-year rate's going to move up or down and you buy a two-year bond, guess what? You may be right, but it won't really impact your portfolio that much because there's not enough uh, volatility in that part of the yield curve to really drive a meaningful portfolio impact. But if you use a two-year future, um, it, 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 it can significantly add capital appreciation on top of sort of the view that you get right. And so I think that's interesting. Uh, who uses these types of tools? Well, these, these trades look a lot like some of the largest active bond managers, right? They would pile into treasury futures or euro dollar futures ahead of a recession when the Fed typically would start easing. Um, and so these are sort of trades and strategies that much more sophisticated clients have used in other forms, and now we're providing access to the ETF. So, so again, ETFs as a tool for a range of investors, including very large institutional investors, I think that's been a long-term growth and the reason why the ETF market is so big. Okay, so as I go down the list here, your second most popular ETF is the Simplify Volatility Premium ETF, ticker SVOL, S-V-O-L. This is up uh, over 15% this year. Uh, tell us a little bit about this one. Sure. Uh, it could be very simple for a lot of investors. Hey, how do I get the, one of the most attractive forms of equity income out there? What has a history of sort of delivering 15% uh, type distribution yield? So that's really the uh, sort of the simplified income thesis behind it. But why does it? Why is it able to produce those type of returns? Uh, it, it basically goes and, and sells uh, VIX futures contracts, but in a very um, conservative, you know, uh, the appropriate size, i.e., not 100% short, but anywhere from 20 to 30% short VIX. And it buys defensive call options on VIX. So if VIX spikes um, one day in a market event, uh, this ETF is designed to protect against those type of moves. The punchline is you get a very similar experience as buying uh, a covered call strategy or other sort of option selling uh, income strategies, except uh, you're much less tied to sort of the drawdowns of the equity market because VIX futures tend to be reversed. So punchline, you get a very similar ride to an equity income strategy, uh, much better attractive uh, returns and yields uh, in the past history. Um, and a much less likelihood of, of participating in, in a significant equity drawdown um, versus sort of the covered call strategies out there. I mentioned uh, that you've launched five new ETFs so far this year. And, and actually, let me just run through the three most recent ones because all of these have come out over the past uh, month or so. Um, so there's the Simplify Market Neutral Equity Long Short ETF, ticker EQLS equals... There's the Simplify Opportunistic Income ETF, ticker CRDT, credit, and then the Simplify Multi-QIS Alternative ETF, ticker QIS. Do you, do you want to, if you want to pull one of those out and give a snapshot of it, that's fine, or if you want to briefly comment on all three of those, I'm just curious. And again, I just think that really highlights what you're doing in the ETF marketplace. Uh, yeah. So the last three ETFs, I think, really telegraph what we're trying to be in the ETF market, which is people sort of... Uh, you know, ETF alternatives provider, um, people being anyone from an RA to an advisor to, you know, very large institutions, which we're increasingly um, selling our ETFs to. 
Um, what is EQLS? EQLS is a true equity long short strategy, 200% long, 200% short. And it uses signals from a very um, well-established sell-side research firm called Wolf Research, uh, with, which has a very long, um, incredible track record in these equity long short type strategies. So you're getting a really, um, essentially a hedge fund-like ex- uh, exposure, a true long short with enough and interesting use of leverage to make it a true equity uh, alternative. Uh, and QIS is also a first of its kind. QIS is taking uh, almost $400 billion quant investment strategy world, uh, often, again, used by sort of the largest institutional invest- investors like pensions and endowments, other hedge funds, other asset managers. And we're providing an on-ramp through an ETF where we're working with some of the largest banks on some of their best and most uh, attractive liquid quant strategies and bringing them via swaps into an ETF with enough, again, uh, notional exposure to make this interesting and really provide essentially a cost-effective, transparent hedge fund inside of an ETF wrapper. Uh, but last of, and not least of the three, CRDT credit is an opportunistic credit investor uh, meant to be a liquid version compete alongside of sort of the private credit uh, type world, give very attractive income, uh, very opportunistic, can go into very distressed names as well as liquid uh, things as well, uh, bank loans, um, you know, high yield, uh, CLOs, it could, it could hedge using CDX. So a true uh, partnership with an established credit manager providing essentially a credit hedge fund in our ETF as well. Just a few minutes left here on that opportunistic income ETF credit, which again, fantastic uh, ticker. I, I, I also want to fold in here the Simplify Enhanced Income ETF ticker high, another great ticker. Uh, <laughs> but you may have caught the tail end of my conversation with Vetify's Tom Lydon. So we were uh, discussing fixed income ETFs earlier. And I know you participated in their uh, fixed income symposium yesterday, wh- wh- which by the way, how was that? It was amazing, especially for an inaugural event. Um, great names, great panel, great content, uh, timely, right? So all of the above. I uh, really enjoyed that time. And uh, the production value was really high, too. So the text and sort of quality of the platform was amazing. Yeah, that's great. I was bummed. I uh, I had to miss it. So uh, unfortunately, I hope there's, there's a replay and go back and watch it. But um, I, I flagged credit and then high because, look, I, I think – Fixed income, obviously, it's much more attractive for advisors now because we actually have income. But as Tom and I discussed, um, it's also a challenge because advisors are having ha- having to uh, to manage the duration risk and manage credit risk. That's obviously a big challenge right now. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So maybe talk a little bit about that challenge. And then if you want to uh, flag or, or highlight high a little bit, that'd be great as well. Sure. I'll start, start actually with high because it's a much more sort of a static portfolio, if you will. Uh, static in the sense that it's just going to buy a bunch of T-bills. So you get at least a T-bill interest um, income. And then on top of that, it will sell periodically, roughly every two weeks or so, a basket of options. So the same reason that, again, covered call type strategies have done, done so well. Um, we're going to bring that independently into the fixed income world. So you basically get T-bills plus a very attractive uh, option income. And it's important to get the right option strategy when you sell uh, 
options. And so two things that we do that, that differentiate us from a lot of others, um, one, we sell spreads so that we are really focused on the maximum you can lose in any period. We, we sell very modest amounts of spreads, typically put spreads, but can also sell call spreads. Um, and then the second is we diversify those options. So it's not just selling S&P options or just selling uh, specific uh, index, but we actually go across the universe and look for attractive volatility across different sub uh, indices, as well as the broad market, as well as uh, looking at commodities as well. So anytime there's interesting volatility and a great risk-adjusted sale of options out there, um, that's sort of what we're selling and in a very measured form. Punchline, you get about uh, historically uh, 9% or higher distribution income, no credit risk, and very low duration risk in T-bills. Um, Credit, on the other hand, is opportunistic. It can go negative duration. Uh, it's really positioned to be basically zero duration right now. Uh, and it, it picks a spot, and it's going to be opportunistic. And it's, it's right now, it's got a lot of liquidity and dry powder, and we're really waiting for the opportunity to buy distressed loans and high yield and things like that uh, in the coming credit cycle. So it's truly a very aggressive, go anywhere, unconstrained credit, uh, investor with, um, uh, long track record. Well, Paul, so great, uh, having you back on the podcast. Congratulations on all the success. I, I know you're uh, just getting started here. Next time we talk, you'll probably have 5 billion or 10 billion, but, uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Nate, for the opportunity. And uh, it's, it's, it's a thrill to be part of the CTF market. Uh, it's the cutting edge, and we're helping a lot of our investors with their biggest portfolio problems. And it uh, doesn't feel like those problems are stopping anytime soon. So as long as you keep that mindset, I think there's a lot of growth ahead of us and the industry. I love it. That was uh, Paul Kim, CEO and co-founder of Simplify ETFs. Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. joined by Julie Kane, CEO and co-founder of Democracy Investments, who's behind the Democracy International Fund ETF, ticker symbol DMCY. Uh, Julie is now on the line with me from the uh, San Francisco area. Julie, welcome to the uh, podcast. 
Thanks for having me, Nate. Okay, so you have been in the financial services industry for over 20 years, and we'll get into why you launched Democracy Investments and, and certainly the ETF, but I have to start by asking you about the very beginning of your career, because as I understand it, you flew SH-3-seeking helicopters for the U.S. Navy, right? You flew combat support and search and rescue missions. I'd love to hear more about that before we get into ETFs. Oh, thanks for asking that, Nate. Yes, so I did start my career in the Navy. I actually did ROTC at UVA, and I was in flight training during Desert Storm. And the war ended during flight training. It went a lot faster than we thought it would, and I ended up getting deployed to the Philippines, where I got to fly the Navy SEALs around and do combat search and rescue training. And, yes, from a from a young age, I... Uh, had a high adrenaline career and uh, also became aware of the trends in democracy and feel very grateful to to live in the democracy that we live in. Yeah, and you also recently served as a, a captain in the California State Guard. Do I have that correct? Yes, I signed up during COVID because I was worried and I ended up getting activated to help with the wildfires in Tahoe. Um, I'm now um, in the inactive reserves on standby. But, um, yeah, that was my my response to COVID was how can I contribute? <laughs> well, and on that note, I think it's also worth mentioning that you're involved with a nonprofit helping military veterans. You, do you want to tell us a little bit about that endeavor? Oh, it's been such an honor to help Swords to Plowshares. I've been involved with that nonprofit for more than eight years, and they've been helping over 3,000 veterans a year get housing, uh, medical, legal, mental health, all of the wraparound service model. And it's, it's been it's one of the best run veteran nonprofits in the country. And it's been just an honor to be a part of that. Well, thank you for your service and uh, certainly everything you're doing to help support military veterans. I actually come from a military family uh, myself, so I truly appreciate your service and everything you're doing here. Um, okay. Now give me the backstory on why you decided to launch uh, an ETF firm and, and just how you got involved with the industry to begin with. Oh, well, I was actually recruited out of the Navy by SEI Investments. And I was in their first class of junior military officers and uh, worked directly for the CEO. And that's actually what brought me to the Bay Area. Um, but uh, I've come full circle and our ETF actually sits on SEI's platform now. So... Um, what I do today, interestingly, brings together pretty much every role I've ever had in my life for the first time. I'm focused on democracy, I'm in touch with my friends who are still serving and hearing about what's going on in the world. And that was part of the impetus for starting our company. Um, my partners and I were watching the trends in democracy. Less than half of the world's population live in a democracy of some sort, and a third live under authoritarian rule. And we were watching the rise of the, uh, the international index strategies that have been pressured to allocate more and more to authoritarians over the years. And we wanted to come up with a strategy that would undo that and give investors an alternative to the market cap only way of international investing. So we came up with the idea actually during COVID and when we were able to secure an exclusive license to use the Economist Magazine's Democracy Index, uh, we formed our company. So uh, the fund is now two years and three months old, um, and the company is three years old. 
And, uh, yeah, we, so we've had a lot of um, positive attention given everything that's going on in the world. When we, when we set out to do this, we thought, well, here's, a, here's an alternative that, you, you know, you won't be giving anything up. And then the war in Ukraine happened, and <laughs> um, the decline in democracy has continued. So uh, we've, been getting, we've been getting a lot of um, uh, positive attention. So talk more about what's actually going on underneath the hood of the ETF itself. Again, the Democracy International Fund, uh, it is index-based. You mentioned using uh, the, the, the economists. They have these indicators where they're, they're rating on, I, I know, a 0 to 10 scale in terms of uh, you know, which com- countries are most democratic. Um, just, just talk more about what's actually going on uh, underneath the uh, surface here. Sure. So The Economist has been publishing... Uh, their democracy index since 2006 with 60 different indicators, which are on our website. And those indicators roll up into themes such as electoral process, function of government, political participation, and civil liberties. So we start with the same 2,800 large cap, mid cap stocks, mostly developed markets, 15% emerging markets. And then we look at each securities country of risk as defined by Bloomberg or ICON, and then we assign the country's democracy score according to their country of risk to neutrally reweight the portfolio towards democracies and away from authoritarians. So we're holding every security accountable to their country democracy score. And that results in overweighting in countries like Japan, UK, Canada, Switzerland, Australia, Sweden, the Nordics do well, New Zealand as well. And then we downweight authoritarians, such as Saudi Arabia, Egypt, China, and the UAE. You mentioned the, uh, the Nordic countries. So if you look at you know, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, and then if you uh, add New Zealand uh, in there, when I looked at your website, those have the biggest positive adjustment for democracy versus the starting index. So just to be clear, as you mentioned, the top country weights are uh, Japan and uh, UK, Canada, France, Switzerland, but the the Nordic countries and then New Zealand have the biggest positive adjustment, uh, again, versus that starting index. When you look at the underlying data, I'm just curious, what do you see as some of the biggest drivers there? Like what stands out to you? Well, interestingly, smaller countries with, with a smaller number of cultures tend to be able to have a stronger democracy than a larger country like the U.S., where we have multiple cultures. And, um, you know, the Nordics have a long history of political stability and very low levels of corruption. Um, they have less social unrest and very strong welfare states. And uh, New Zealand as well has a very robust electoral system and high levels of political participation. So uh, our chief economist actually looked at democracies by population, and sadly, the trends look worse when you look at the number of people uh, living in a democracy. However, the United States is not doing that badly, you know, given our size. So we, we have political polarization issues, uh, an erosion of trust in our in our institutions, but for our size, we're actually not doing that badly, even though we are scored a flawed democracy by the Economist. And I don't, to be clear, our strategy is ex-U.S. We're international only, um, but I often get asked why the U.S. is uh, is not doing so well compared to compared to Europe, et cetera. 
No, that's jumped out at me as well. Again, to your point, U.S. stocks are not included in your ETF. But if you look at those Economist Democracy, uh, Democracy Index scores, the U.S. is around middle of the pack, which I think might surprise some people. But I think you described why there. Um, in, in terms of the investment thesis itself, I, I feel like intuitively it makes sense that more democratic countries will perform better. I, again, I, I just think if you think about that high level, that makes sense. But I'm curious, what does the data actually say on that? Well, yes, our investment thesis is that democracies will outperform authoritarians over the long term. Um, and there is research that authoritarians have much higher growth volatility compared to democracies. And they have more frequent short-term crises that contribute to that. Um, in addition, the rules can change, whereas democracies have stronger rule of law and property rights. And authoritarians have more wars and revolutions, civil unrest, and and also generally lower lower per capita GDP. So those are those are some of the factors. Um, you know, interestingly, our our uh, our index the index we track has done very well mainly due to outperformance in countries like Canada, the UK, France, Australia, and Switzerland, and um, most significantly because of our downweight of China over the last two years. Yeah, it's interesting on the note of outperformance. And listeners, as always, do your own homework. You, you know, don't, don't rely on performance data we're providing here. But I, I did check, and since your ETF debuted in March of 2021, uh, it is beating some of the most popular ETFs in this category by anywhere between, uh, say, 3 and 5% uh, cumulatively. So I looked at the uh, iShares MSCI ACWI XUS ETF, so ticker ACWX. I looked at the Vanguard FTSE All World XUS ETF, so ticker VEU. And then the uh, Spider MSCI ACWI XUS ETF, ticker CWI. Uh, I, I guess on the note of those three ETFs, I mean, anything that you would point to regarding competing ETFs and how uh, your ETF compares, but besides the performance part? Well, our strategy, uh, because we're, we're, we're basically merging two indices, we're, we're merging the Economist Democracy Index with an all-world XUS index, and therefore we are accounting for geopolitical risk and the trends towards reglobalization. And, uh, you know, China's score dropped in 2022 by 12%. So we hold about 70% less of China compared to those products that you just mentioned. So I think, you know, you know, sadly, China's having some struggles right now. I mean, just today, there's news about their economy having difficulty coming back from the zero COVID lockdowns and their, their growth remains sluggish and their the property market is is uh, continually continue to be in decline, and they're having jobless joblessness issues as well. I think I just read that uh, uh, 16 to 24 year olds are 21 to either somewhere between 20 and 50 percent in unemployment. So um, I think that's uh, that's causing some of the the decline there. Yeah, and on the note of China, maybe you just answered it, but one of the questions I, I, I hear on an approach like yours is if we take China, it is the second largest economy in the world. And as you noted, your methodology right now is obviously minimizing China exposure. There's only about a 2% weighting here. Isn't that a bet against the world's second largest economy? Or, or how do you view that? Because, again, that's a question that I hear on strategies like yours. 
So we don't screen them out completely. We're not an ex-China fund. We're just tilting very neutrally according to their democracy score. So if they start to turn things around and their democracy score goes up, then we will increase our allocation. Uh, you know, interestingly, the all world X U.S. funds, as well as a lot of the top international ESG funds, hold two China tech stocks that contribute to the surveillance state. So, you know, that's that's something that is not in our top our top ten holdings. And um, uh, you know, if uh, like I said, if they improve their democracy score, then we will then we will allocate accordingly. You mentioned uh, ESG. I'm just curious. Do you consider your strategy a, uh, a quote-unquote ESG ETF? Uh, we don't. I mean, some people say we're kind of the S, we're kind of the G. I like to say we're the big G for government, or there should be a D in ESG, and you should start with democracy screening first, and then do your do your ESG, because, again, um, you could be so focused on the E you may be investing in, for example, wind farms and solar panels made by forced labor. And how is, that's not accounting for human rights. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy around ESG right now. Um, we're definitely an impact fund, um, but we are not technically ESG. Just about two minutes left here before I let you go. Uh, a topic that I've covered quite a bit over the past uh, month or two is stock valuations. And how, if you look here in the U.S., valuations do look overextended. But if you look internationally, valuations do look more attractive. Now, of course, that's been the case for a long time now, right? And it's been uh, pretty tough going for investors who have allocated internationally over the past really 15 years or so. I, do, do you mind just talking a little bit about how you, you view that and maybe just what you view as the high-level opportunity for international stocks uh, longer term? Well, uh, longer term, diversification wins. And we feel like our strategy, like I said, is gives you a way to incorporate geopolitical risk and the trends we're seeing with shifting supply chains, et cetera. And yes, I mean, the right now, international is 35% cheaper than, than domestic stocks. So why wouldn't you, you know, allocate accordingly. Um, I mean, I've heard, I've heard some folks out there recommend, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30% uh, international allocation. So um, I think, uh, I think we're going to see more trends towards um, uh, shifting supply chains and more trends towards reglobalization that will impact the economies positively of, of democracy. And now's a, a great time to be, to be, uh, thinking more strategically about your international investments. Well, Julie, an absolute pleasure connecting this week. I certainly wish you the best of luck with the uh, ETF moving forward. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. That was Julie Kane, CEO and co-founder of Democracy Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by Dimensionals co-CEO Gerardo Riley. So we're going to get into all the details regarding their recent SEC filing for the ETF share class structure, big news in the ETF space, and then Comson Silipachi, Vice President of Research and Portfolio Strategy with Sage Advisory, is going to talk ETF portfolio construction. Until then, have a great week, everyone.